0: Welcome to Threshold Stories, crossing thresholds, one story at a time. I'm your host, Jeff Gora. Today's guest Ken Alita's international career is the stuff of a storybook. I consider myself to be well-traveled and culturally astute, yet compared to Ken, I'm a rookie at every level. Ken lived in Mogadishu, Somalia in the 1960s, and Afghanistan in the 1970s, before there was a thing called the Mujahideen. He also lived in Iran in the 1970s, when the Shah was still in charge and Tehran was considered one of the most beautiful cities on Earth. Additional stints in Saudi Arabia, Algeria, and Singapore finally led Ken to a 20-plus year career at Samsung, where he retired in 2004. Ken is an active member of the Charlotte Area Peace Corps Association and has better first-hand stories of places on Earth that many of us think are more dangerous than anywhere else on Earth. All that said, Ken loves every one of these places, each in a unique way. Ken's threshold stories are many, as cultural assimilation is an all-in endeavor. It is my pleasure to bring over Ken to tell some of his threshold stories. When I first started this podcast series, I actually had you in mind. I cannot tell you the impact it made on me when I had just joined the Charlotte Area Peace Corps Association and I met you at the then-president's house for an event. And I don't remember anything at all about the food. I really don't remember a whole lot of the people I met. but when you did your presentation on what it was like in Afghanistan and Somalia in the 70s, and I juxtaposed that to what the television and the media and the journalism trade rags around the world were telling me those places were like, it was a psychotic event. <laughs> that which I had believed to be true was not, and I had no idea. I was just miffed by that whole process. So you're a treasure. I think you have the ability, by telling real stories about real Afghanistan and not just bombs and Kabul and decapitation and female mutilations and all that to, to change some stuff. So thank you for making the time to be here. Well,
1: thank you for the invitation, Jeff.
0: Sure, absolutely. So jump right to it. How in the world did you end up in Afghanistan?
1: Well, uh, it was Peace Corps, and it was uh, via Somalia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the story you have to tell about Somalia is you got thrown out of Somalia.
1: That's right. Uh, I was in Somalia most of the calendar year nineteen sixty nine. Went there with a group of other uh, Peace Corps volunteers, and uh, although we were Peace Corps was sort of on thin ice in Somalia anyway historically, and they mm-hmm. they told us when before we left the U.S. that we might be the last Peace Corps group in Somalia. And they were quite right about that. Uh, <laughs> they didn't plan it this way, but we did end up being the last group sent to Somalia. So uh,
0: everybody got thrown out of yes, Somalia. yeah, yeah. So what and year and month was that?
1: Uh, well, there was a revolution in October of, of 1969, and uh, it took them until December, late December of 69, to decide to throw out basically all American programs in Somalia there were some other uh, aid programs and other activities going on with education, and uh, all Americans were asked to leave at the end of 69.
0: So by who? The Somali government or the U.S. Uh, government? Uh,
1: Somali government. Uh, there was a revolution, as I said, in October, and uh, it was pretty obvious from the the day of the revolution uh, which direction the government was going, and uh, I remember that... Uh, the day after the revolution, the daily newspaper, uh, we used to have newspapers back then, and the daily newspaper came out. Uh, in English, it, I'm assuming. Uh, no, or Italian. actually in Italian, yeah. Okay. and For those that uh, don't know
0: Somalia, we used to be an Italian um, protectorate.
1: Right, the, the, yeah, this, most of the two-thirds southern part of what is now considered Somalia was an Italian colony. And uh, the masthead of the paper for the first time ever had this huge red star in the middle of it and the moment I saw that it it clicked and I thought oh this is (laughs) this is a bad sign for us I (laughs) think I know what's going on here and it it had been a military coup and the military had been trained supported and was totally almost totally under the control of the Soviet Union so it was pretty obvious what was happening Uh, I remember had, with the red star i was having that discussion with some other volunteers that day look at the paper look at this, look at this red star and people are saying no that's nothing that doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. well it, it didn't on that day but it took until the end of december and by the end of december we were out of there uh and they didn't use the word evacuation we were evacu peace corps used it we were evacuated from somalia
0: so i'm but, assuming that was they flew you all to the same place yeah they flew us all
1: to nairobi to the New Stanley Hotel, which was the one of the nicest, nicest British colony, colonial type hotels in Africa. Well, let's hit it the backspace pretty... bar.
0: Let's hit the backspace button a few times here. <clears throat> Somalia in nineteen sixty-nine. What was that like? What was that experience like before, let's say, the revolution?
1: Because uh, all I know,
0: yeah. and like everybody else, is what showed up with the Mogadishu fiasco twenty years ago. Right. Uh, Thirty years it, ago.
1: It, it it was a mixed bag. Uh, and in fact, uh, maybe with a little more authority, I can speak on that now after having been to a 50-year reunion just a couple of months ago Holy of cow. my group uh, and, and a couple of others from a couple of other groups. We all met uh, in West Virginia back in September, and uh, we w- spent three days and nights together uh, reviewing that year in Somalia mm-hmm. 50 years later and uh
0: that's incredible 50 years later post-revolution yeah, party
1: yeah uh what the takeaway from that uh was interesting uh because we had in the group we had um about two-thirds of those people and i'm, I'm thinking like 15 people maybe uh were posted as volunteers um, around the country mm-hmm. in mostly in rather inaccessible villages that in Mm -hmm. some cases you had to walk to off the highway for a while. Uh,
0: That was my experience in Nepal. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, And then you had another, about one third of the group Mm -hmm. uh, were in a couple of big cities. The biggest city being Mogadishu and that's where I was. Um, And the those two groups had very different experiences. And we didn't realize that until a few months ago, hmm. 50 years later, when we all started to have the chance and wanted to talk about all of this together, uh, we discovered that the people that were in the villages had a very positive experience and right. they loved it. And the people, the city folk like myself, Had a rather negative experience. No kidding. So Uh, you didn't.
0: You weren't crying when you had to fly out of there. No, not really. Some of the villagers Uh, were. Well,
1: actually, since you use the word crying, you remind me that uh, I was working at the port of Mogadishu, and which was the is the major port in Somalia. And uh, I was working with port workers, everything from stevedores to guys that worked in the office doing accounting. Uh, Basically. working on on teaching them port english whatever that means uh like port wine yeah similar right okay uh and i i had uh, i was requesting and i would get uh nicely through uh the diplomatic pouch uh all sorts of uh brochures and things that i could work with to develop materials from other ports around the United States and I myself was learning port English because I didn't know much about the business of having a running a port uh, but anyway we were just it was basically English class for people who work at a port
0: so and do- language they would need working yes. on the docks and yeah we're on from all working the transportation on the
1: docks to to keeping the books on what's coming in in containers and everything else okay uh, and uh, The profound experience was on the last day when the news came in the morning that somebody came to the house from the embassy and said uh go to work today and tell your class that this is the last day this came as a total shock to me and to the rest of us uh you're not going how many
0: was the rest of us how many of you uh, well,
1: well, in, uh, in Mogadishu, uh, there were about eight of us. I think in Hargeza, there must have been about another four or five. Uh, and then there were those other, the other group of about 15 or so in the villages. Uh, it was the last day for everybody, whatever their job was. And not everybody was a teacher. There were people doing health care and other sure. jobs out there. Uh, anyway, and a friend of mine in Mogadishu was working in the prison. Boy, does he have stories to tell prison, prison in Mogadishu. Uh, but, uh, so I went to work and, uh, went to the port and saw my class and they're all there. And it's, it's a bunch of guys and most of them looked kind of tough and, you know, port workers for the most part. Uh, and I said, I've got some news for you. Uh, today is our last day with this class. Uh, and how did that go? Well, you reminded me of it just now when you used the word crying. Uh, I spoke to them for a couple of minutes, and I told them how much I enjoyed meeting them, knowing them, working with them, and I hope that they got something out of this experience. And, uh, you know, within about 10 minutes, I was out of there. And when I was leaving, several guys, several big guys were actually crying, and that that brought tears to me too. I mean, I couldn't. They're hugging me, and uh, they couldn't believe this was happening. And then, <laughs> they're swearing about the revolution, and they're swearing at the military, and they're they were PO'd. There was no doubt about that. Uh, but it it was the end. I didn't mention that any of those words. I didn't talk about that. I just said uh, we're being asked to leave this country, and uh, you know, it's it's unfortunate, but I've got to go. I'm, I will be out of Somalia within 48 hours. So that, that was kind of how that went.
0: Fascinating. And then from there you flew off to... To Nairobi
1: and uh, that, well, long story short there, an a, uh, assistant director of the Peace Corps uh, flew to Nairobi from Washington and announced to us that uh, there was a new Peace Corps country opening up and that uh, we... Peace Corps at the time was negotiating with the government of that country and that very soon the announcement would be made and they would like all of us who want to to join in that program and the country was the Bahamas. And we just went crazy, hey, we're going to the Bahamas, everybody's going to the ba- Of course, we weren't going to Nassau or Freeport, I mean, we were going to some out island, we were warned, uh, where there are more mosquitoes than anything else. Uh, but we were all psyched up for the Bahamas and uh, spent about a week around Kenya, and then they flew us back to our home of record in the USA, wherever that was. I ended up in, in Charlotte. And uh, we're waiting, waiting, waiting for something to happen uh, mm-hmm. on, on the Bahamas. And meantime, shortly after arriving back in Charlotte, a letter arrives at my parents' house uh, from the draft board in Charlotte, uh, which opens up a whole new topic of conversation. It does. Um, let's um, we,
0: let's cut right to it. You yeah. used the Peace Corps to evade the draft, for lack of a better phrase.
1: Well, for lack of a better well, to defer the draft uh, because Peace Corps did not replace military service. Uh, Peace Corps just delayed your military service sure. as by law. What happened? What was supposed to happen? Um, but everybody, in any case, as now had to register for selective service, and so of course I was. So we're now in-
0: early 1970, correct?
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah, okay. in J- January of '70. And um, the letter comes to the draft board. It says uh, to report downtown in Charlotte to the draft board office uh, for a hearing. So I go down there uh, at the appointed time and uh, set myself down in front of a bunch of old white men who are staring at me, and they want to know what what game it is I'm playing here because uh, you know I left Somalia and. why did I leave and what's happening? Uh, so I tried to explain it to them and that I was on standby and I was shortly going to be leaving uh, on my next Peace Corps assignment because by law you were allowed two years. Uh, deferment. Deferment, yeah. So, And I'd only used about one year of that. So I had another year coming. And mm-hmm. uh, so I was warned by the board that... Uh, I had better get a new assignment soon because um, if I don't, uh, I I definitely will be drafted. And I just remember this one old fellow sitting across the table from me, uh, putting his finger in my face and saying, son, I know what you're doing and you're not going to get away with it. Okay, and, and immediately oh. the thought that came to my mind was, well, I'm glad you know what I'm doing because I'm not sure I know what I'm doing. But anyway, uh, okay, yes, sir. Uh, so I left and... Uh, it's a good
0: chance to practice smiling at that point.
1: That's true, yeah. yeah. I don't, a lot of people have said I don't smile enough. That's, that is true.
0: Uh, so you leave the draft board yeah. and next part of your story, you've got two years and one month listed in Herat. Yeah, I would argue that most people don't know where Herat is. So for the benefit of the folks who are listening, where is Herat?
1: Yeah, Herat is uh, in the northwest corner of Afghanistan, uh, just a short drive from the Iranian border. uh, And historically, there's good reasons for that, because uh, Iran and much of Afghanistan uh, is, was part of greater Persia. So they shared uh, a lot of the same culture, same languages? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Most of the people in Herat speak, the natives will speak um, a dialect of Farsi, which is quite similar or the equivalent of what's spoken in most of Iran uh, and quite different from the Farsi that's spoken in Kabul. Uh, And then you've got another official language in Afghanistan also called Pashto. Uh, mostly in the south of Afghanistan, but uh, Herat's in the northwest corner, and uh, short drive to Iran. And at that time, if you went straight north, it was an even shorter drive to Turk. Well, today Turkmenistan. Back then, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as Peace Corps volunteers, uh, you were not allowed to go any place near uh, a. Communist country, and, and they were supplied a list of such places uh, everywhere from uh, Poland to Russia to China, etc. Uh, so you, we had to sort of be careful going north. So, what of kind Europe.
0: of emotion did that elicit? Saying I'm now out of a revolution and I'm close to the Soviet border on one side and the Iran- and Iranian border to my west here. What kind of emotion did that elicit? like did you land there were you scared
1: no not at all uh what do you
0: remember about that landing experience well into afghanistan
1: well we flew we flew into kabul uh because there were no international flights in or out of herat uh even though that is was the uh, third largest city in afghanistan Uh, but it is quite isolated being in the northwest like that uh flew into kabul and um I, i have to just uh, interject for a moment on it was like four aircraft to get there and the first flight was uh, from Kennedy Airport to Paris and it was mm-hmm. the first commercial flight of a 747 across the Atlantic Ocean mm-hmm. and there were news crews on there videoing the whole thing and uh, it, did it, you it get was a, caviar and- no but we got big seats in economy we had big comfortable seats unlike get now on almost any aircraft mm-hmm. in uh, coach or economy. Uh, but uh, flying in uh, the last leg was Tehran to uh, Kabul on um, Iran Air and coming, mm-hmm. coming into Kabul uh, where the aircraft is going down, approaching the, the uh, runways and we're getting lower and lower and I'm looking out the window and uh but the very first thought because this is the first of afghanistan i'd seen except the distant mountains also out the aircraft window but they were distant snow covered looking good Uh, i'm looking straight down now as the aircraft's coming in and the first thought i had was oh wow this is a rich country
0: wealthy right Uh,
1: yes uh because you know a little over a month ago i was in somalia and there was a world of difference between the two Um, in, in Afghanistan, uh, looking down out the window, I saw trash on the ground. Garbage. Yes. Uh, I saw pieces of wood, lumber, uh, that it looked like nobody wanted. I saw paper that was there. This was impossible in Somalia. There was no such thing as trash on the ground of any sort. There was no paper. There was no lumber. There was nothing on the ground, uh, Not because uh, they were that uh, uptight about trash, but it was because uh, maybe Somalia was one of the first places that um, believed in recycling. Uh, People were so dirt poor that Mm -hmm. nothing went to waste, absolutely nothing. Yeah, I didn't have a
0: waste can in Nepal when I was there in the 80s for the same reason. Anything that I thought I was done with, somebody would want.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and so Afghanistan was quite different in that respect. Uh, we
0: So what do you remember about the sights and sounds, if you can recall any of that, or even the smells climbing off that plane in well, Afghanistan?
1: Um, it's uh, w- one of the first sights uh, that was somewhat strange was the fact that you could see human beings being used as uh, horses, uh, pulling carts uh, loaded down with merchandise or freight or something through the streets. Uh, and it was one class of people that was doing that. Uh, one of the, the large ethnic groups in Afghanistan is the Hazara, who are sort of at the bottom of the pecking order. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, they were relegated to such work, uh, and they did it gladly. Uh, so th- that was that was an unusual sight. Uh, How did they look?
0: What made them stand out other than the fact that they were attached to devices and being used yeah, as packing? Uh, they
1: looked. They looked very Asian. Unlike, tell you what that means to me in a moment. Uh, unlike what most Afghans look like. Uh, uh, most. Afghans, uh, and considering the language of Afghanistan, uh, Farsi in particular, is an Indo-European language. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you've got a lot of Afghan children uh, born with, because Marco Polo came through, uh, went right down Main Street in Herat. Uh, You've got a lot of kids born with blonde hair and blue eyes. Uh, Really? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Our media doesn't show that. No uh you've got uh a lot of uh afghans could pass for italian no problem uh but the hazara no uh the hazara as i said looked asian meaning that uh mongolian or uh, it, mongoloid traits yeah, yeah yeah and uh it's not so, a racial slur it's a medical no, that's yes. a medical term right. mongoloid traits right and So they stood out from the rest. They're they're 100% Afghan citizens, but uh, that was an easy-to-identify group. And Mm -hmm. if you were in that group, I think you were relegated to, uh, as I said... um,
0: Very few Americans born today, let alone Peace Corps volunteers today, know what you just said. They can't fathom a group of people saying everybody born in Brooklyn is going to push Mm. cars for a living or something like that. Everybody from Oakland, California is relegated to cleaning toilets that just doesn't go into our category of possible over here Yeah, yeah. and that is kind of the way of the world yeah
1: we, we only spent a couple of days in herat uh, sorry in Kabul uh before uh, it was just me and and the other guy that talked me into going to Afghanistan in the first place from the so state. there was two of you uh, in the first that Peace yeah, Corps group t- two yeah it was a group of two which is very unusual but uh, He uh, was a friend from Somalia, uh, from the Somali group, who uh, was desperate because his draft board was breathing down his neck just the way mine was, and he made the extra special effort of going to Washington, going uh, up and down the hallways of the Peace Corps building, knocking on doors, saying, please, uh, do you need a volunteer Uh, anywhere in the world? I'll go, I'll go. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's how I got this phone call in Charlotte uh, from him saying, uh, hey, uh, I've found a position, and they need one more person, and I thought of you. And uh, this is where networking uh, came in, and this was long before social media or all the other sure. kinds of ways we network now. Uh, old-fashioned networking really worked for me uh, throughout my career. Uh So, you know, Bill, I said, well, where is this? And he said, Afghanistan. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, Herat. And he tells me exactly what I'll be doing and everything. And I said, okay, when are we going? And he said, tomorrow. So what Uh, time of day did he tell you we're leaving tomorrow? This was early afternoon, 2 o'clock or so. So uh, your phone call came in. So it's
0: 1970, January 1970. You've got what? Eight hours, 10 hours left before you go to bed? That's right. And, and then you wake up and you're going to cross the world for two years.
1: That's right. That's that's the way it happened. What do you um, do?
0: What do you do with the, those eight hours of life when you realize whatever you know is about to get turned upside down?
1: Well, uh... And did you just go out and get drunk or something no, like that? No, what did no, you choose no. to do? Well, it, it again, bear in mind it's January and it was cold enough in Charlotte and I had a sneaking suspicion it was going to be colder in Afghanistan. And I was right because there's no central heating or anything approaching that. Uh... The moment my mother got home, uh, she was working, my father was working, uh, I said, the uh, same thing I said to my father, I've found a job, and well, they're happy to hear that, so I'm, I'm out of the house, they're happy to hear that. Uh, so, where are you going? Afghanistan. Oh, Afghanistan. Oh, and, and when are you leaving? Tomorrow morning. What? Tomorrow morning? Oh, no, we got to do shopping. So, uh, jump in the car and... Bought a bunch of uh, winter, good new winter clothing and sure. uh, just provisions for uh, a, a harsh uh, climate. And, and that was your luggage. Yeah, basically. That, that was the luggage. Right. Uh, so when and,
0: you said Afghanistan, what kind of imagery went through? Now, this is what was going on in Afghanistan in the 70s that might mean something to your parents.
1: Not much is the answer. So the Russians had
0: not... The Mujahideen Russian invasion, none of that had happened No, yet.
1: no. And there was no talk of war, insurrection, or Muslims, or uh, anything else. Uh, it was just another far-off place that... Uh, people didn't know much about but that also means they didn't really know anything negative about either mm-hmm. um so it was going to be an adventure and that's the way I looked at it too it was going so to be you adventure. went
0: to there with optimism for sure yes yep. and your parents didn't send you over there with this fear and trepidation of being shot by a Russian
1: not at all no nothing no, like no nothing nothing like that uh, but
0: Ken I, what if today you said I'm going back into the Peace Corps and they said Ken we're sending you to Afghanistan same response or different?
1: Uh, today, yes. I think today I wouldn't want to go. Uh, I had the, you know, slightly related. I had the opportunity a couple of a year and a half ago to go to Somalia again, mm-hmm. uh, because in some of my group, once that, thrown out of Somalia, that's right. Some of my not group, always thrown out of Somalia. Yeah. Uh, Some of the folks that I had the reunion with actually took advantage of that offer uh, because it was to monitor an election in the north Mm -hmm. uh, as an independent international monitor. Uh, A lot of Peace Corps people were offered that and uh, several people took it up and they had a pretty positive experience, but that was in the north of Somalia, which. Some people consider to be a separate country now called Somaliland. Uh, it's not internationally recognized, but it does have its own uh, telephone country code. And, uh, no kidding. Yeah, the International Telecommunications Union has recognized it as a separate place, but politically it's not recognized and there is, uh, that's got to be sorted out. But uh, it is very different from most of the country in that it's the old British colony And uh, Somalia was, uh, most of what we now call Somalia was Italian in the south and British in the north. And uh, the northern part today is uh, quiet, under control, Uh, people uh, are living a reasonable life and uh, they would like that peace to come to the whole country. But the problem, one of the major problems in Somalia is that there are a lot of clans. Uh, there are four major clans, but there are a slew of sub-clans, and uh, they're all jockeying for power all the time, and that's, that's an issue. Uh, and, and So is this what the media
0: shows us, the jeeps with the guys, yeah. submachine guns? and uh,
1: Yes, to some extent uh, that's related to the clan problem.
0: Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, let's switch back to Afghanistan. Yeah. So you're in Afghanistan, you're Herat. what did what were you sent there to do?
1: Uh, initially, I was at a boys' high school, and uh, were you a teacher? I, I was, yes. Yeah. Uh, and it it was a privilege to really within Afghan circles to be in Herat, within Peace Corps circles, it was a privilege, and it was two of us, myself and Bill, the guy that I went over with, who got sent there. This rubbed a lot of other American Peace Corps volunteers in Kabul who were still in training and had all applied for Herat and had been turned down. This rubbed them the wrong way. And uh, we didn't develop any friendships from that group uh, because uh, everybody wanted to go to Herat. It is the cultural center of Afghanistan. Uh, it has a long lineage of uh, poets and um, other very educated uh, authors and and uh, all sorts of folks who uh, are famous within the circles of uh, mm-hmm. Persian culture. And uh, it, it was a capital of culture for all of Persia at one point uh, several centuries ago. So it retains a lot of that still, and uh, it has a lot of educated people, and is much more relaxed than Kabul uh, in many ways. And even you know, during the last twenty years, there has been very little violence in Herat, even though uh, it's the third largest city in the country. Uh, but it. I considered it also a privilege to be uh, chosen to go to teach in Herat. And, but they warned us that, again, uh, this could be the last time they sent volunteers to Herat. This was the final test to see whether Herat really wanted Peace Corps or not. Uh, But it was also sort of a test to see uh, whether Afghanistan wanted Peace Corps or not. Uh, It was rough. uh, peace corps considered it a, a hardship country and that's saying something because right. most people consider all peace corps countries to be hardship
0: countries but when peace corps and says nepal was hard- not a hardship country even though we we're yeah. poor and right not a lot of infrastructure uh, so uh, so what's the good what's the climate of Herat for people who don't understand quite where it's at on the map well, What's your well, winter like and what's your summer like
1: we'll, we'll t- talk about the school year for one thing to answer that question and that is that uh School, uh, school year runs from March to uh, about uh, September. Uh, and that's all because the rest of the time, it's too darn cold. Uh, and as I said- What does that there's, mean? There's no central heating. Uh, well, it's usually below freezing and the winds coming off the desert and off the mountains. You've got mountains and desert It's surrounding Herat. Uh, The winds are fierce, so it's very uncomfortable. And the schools, for example, didn't have... (laughs) They had holes in the wall, but they didn't have glass in them. There were no windows. Uh, There was no, as I said, nothing like central heating. So uh, you just had to sweat through it in the summertime. Summers are pretty fierce uh, also. They're hot. Because, mm. again, you've got the winds coming off the desert uh, in, in the middle of the summer. So, uh, so put some e- numbers on that too for the people who are listening in. Well, it, it generally, you know, Fahrenheit degrees, it's, it's over 100 in the summertime much of the time. And uh, in the winter, again, uh, I'm not sure really how cold it would get. Uh, but, but you'd never uh, warm up no you you'd never warm up in so some somewhere
0: in october you get cold and you thaw in march
1: yeah correct uh and for for the, you bathe
0: during that time
1: sometimes yes uh but um same time uh, the volunteers were encouraged to during uh, volunteers who were doing teaching uh, during their off-season, uh, they were encouraged to develop projects or they were handed projects to do and quite often, uh, like for volunteers in Herat, those projects involved going to Kabul and doing something uh, in the eastern part of the country in Kabul, like develop uh, education materials if you were a teacher or um, working in a hospital or, or nursing or something if, if you were doing healthcare. Uh, There were lots of projects that Peace Corps Mm -hmm. or or you would come up with to get you out of Herat and a few other places like that that were kind of unlivable in the wintertime. And because there there was better housing in Kabul and there was some semblance of heat in Kabul and uh, you could survive the winter in Kabul, even though the winter wasn't really much milder. Uh, there were, like, like uh, some place you would hear in the news a good bit uh, just uh, within the past 10 years, Jalalabad, uh, which is on the way between uh, Kabul and the Pakistani border. Uh, that place is incredible. It's, it's only an hour or so's drive uh, to the east from Kabul, and there's orange trees and oranges growing all over the place in the wintertime. It's like Florida almost. Uh, in in Jalalabad, uh, and that's where a lot of the fresh fruit was coming from in
0: Afghanistan uh, during the winter. Let's back into that because you're down the next question here: is what did you um, what did you eat in Herat? Um, what well, is the diet of Herat?
1: Yeah, the the local diet uh, consisted uh, with a lot of fresh vegetables of all sorts. And because there was a lot of that grown locally, but the, the water was coming from the mountains and came in channels. Uh, they The Persians developed uh, a system of underground channels that brought water from the mountains down into these valleys and, and mm-hmm. desert areas that could be cultivated. And so there was uh, plenty of agriculture, and they had... Uh, a lot of fruit too. Um, apricots come to mind immediately. Uh, pistachios come to mind immediately. Uh, the first house I lived in had both apricot and pistachio trees in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was pretty neat. You go out and pick your own food.
0: Did you have meat? Uh,
1: yes, uh, plenty. Uh, it, it, for an American, it wasn't that expensive for an afghan it was kind of special and they didn't do that but maybe a couple three times a month or something just because of the cost but there was no problem getting uh primarily lamb and a little bit of beef but uh, the lamb was good high quality really nice and uh, shish kebab lamb kebabs over some good rice uh, all the time is sort of a standard meal in herat and uh, there were even a few good restaurants uh, in Herat at that time because th- that would serve that because uh, Herat was on the main tourist trek uh, between Europe and India. No kidding. So we had, uh, uh, well, at the top of the list would be the Germans, maybe because they were the richest a uh, bunch of Germans would uh, get a Volkswagen bus and... Uh, oh, this is straight
0: out of the hippie Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: A lot of them were. They'd jump in the bus and drive to India, and uh, they would get to the Iranian border and uh, of Turkey and discover that uh, the Iranians were not very understanding of hard drugs. And so they had to hide the stuff or get rid of the stuff, do something and and just drive through Iran as quickly as possible. Nobody wanted to hang out in Iran. But uh, the moment they crossed that border and got near Herat uh, and they're in Afghanistan, uh, they were all hell broke loose. Uh, They thought they were in paradise and uh, a lot of them, oh, no, we're not going to India, we're going to stay in Herat uh but it was it, it was because of the marijuana more than anything on hashish more than anything else
0: so we're uh, in so we're in Afghanistan at this point and um the draft board comes back into play yeah uh i uh, how did that how does that I'd been loomer come back into life
1: i've been doing my uh my time at the uh high school that i was teaching at in in uh Herat Lise jami and um one day, uh, we find out from the U.S. AID agency for international development, contact there uh, who was posted in Herat. He had a two-way radio, shortwave radio, with Kabul, and there was some sort of urgent message for me. And he comes to my house and says, "You got to come back to his house and get on the radio, talk to somebody at the embassy." I do, and they say that. Uh, Basically, that I've got to get to Kabul right away because I'm being drafted.
0: Uh, Boy, did that not take the wind out of your sail? Yeah,
1: no kidding. Uh, so I, How I, far
0: away is Herat from Kabul? Uh, in that metric. Six.
1: Well. Six hours. Six, oh Lord, no, no. It's obviously six, seven hundred miles. Uh, so how did and, you uh, get
0: there? Fly it. Uh, Camel. Uh, Were you, you trying to delay that, this draft?
1: Uh, luckily, at that time they had just uh, opened an air route. And uh, it was possible to fly uh, DC-3s from <laughs> with on a wing and a prayer from uh, Herat to Kabul. So flew back. But I had also gone to Kabul several times, made the trip, and it was practically a 24-hour drive uh, across the whole south of the country uh, from Herat to Kabul. Um, but, uh, no, fl- ended up flying back and uh, had about a day in Kabul where I met with the Peace Corps doctor and um, others who were briefing me on what was going to happen. And I was told, you know, just all your stuff that's in Herat, uh, they're going to put it all in this steamer trunk and uh, it'll just stay there until we figure out where you're really going to be and then we'll send it on. Um, so, okay. that's. caramba. Uh, and the next thing, you know, I was on my way. Now the nearest, what do you mean
0: on your way? Where'd you go? Well,
1: yeah, the nearest U S army base. And that was Camp Darby, Livorno, Italy. So I had to, so you flew from
0: Kabul to Livorno, Italy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is impossible. You, you fly from, uh, Kabul to Rome, that flight existed. And then from Rome to Pisa And then in Pisa, uh, there was a sergeant at the airport there who picked me up and drove me to Livorno and Camp Darby. Uh, I like to say that um, I'm probably one of the only Americans who has uh, ever been to Pisa and not seen the Leaning Tower. Right. I don't know anything about that. But I got to uh, Camp Darby.
0: So how long does it take to get to Camp Darby from Kabul? um,
1: Well, most of a day, basically. Uh, it was a good day's trip. You left Kabul in the morning, and you were in, in Camp, Dar- Camp Darby before dark, I guess, uh, that evening. Wow. Uh, but
0: uh, So you're arriving at Camp Darby. Are, are you getting flashbacks of the um, crew in Charlotte who grilled you and pointed fingers at you? And
1: Yes, yes, that's right, uh, because it looks like I'm in the Army now. Uh, and basically, I was told that, uh, you know, you've got... Uh, two years in Peace Corps and you've had your two years. Uh, You had a year in Somalia, you had a year in Afghanistan and time's up. Uh, I should interject here there is one other factor that uh, some people may not be familiar with and that is the uh, lottery. Uh, This was a free lottery, you didn't have to buy a ticket. Uh, This was a lottery that uh, was conducted in Washington in 1969 that linked people's birthday up with a number between one and 366. And uh, the lower the number, the more likely it was that you were going to be called into military service. Uh, And uh, flashback to Somalia, if you don't mind, for a second again, I will never forget that uh, this one day, we, we weren't really aware of this as volunteers in Somalia very much. We were sort of out of the, the news loop, but uh, a bunch of us decided to uh, go up to this American snack bar which was run by AID uh, downtown in Mogadishu, and once a week or so we'd go for a hamburger or something like that, and went up there, and the moment we walked in, there was something strange going on. There were people staring at a wall in the dining room and I'd never seen anything like that before and then we realized there was something posted on the wall and what was on the wall was a printout of that they had just gotten by cable uh, of the birth dates and the uh, lottery numbers mm-hmm. synced up and uh, There was one guy in my group, my Somali group, who was using every four-letter word he can think of, uh, swearing up and down in the room quite loudly uh, because he was number one. Uh, And it's true that shortly thereafter he was drafted. Uh, Within a month or two, he was pulled out of Somalia before the rest of us were, Mm. Uh, and before the rest of us had been persona non grata told to leave. but uh, I was like about number 180 or something like that, which I thought maybe was a secure position. Uh, it sort of depended on how many people locally where you came from were enlisting of their own volition and what else was happening and what the quotas were for your draft board. So I thought, well, you know, 180-something, maybe maybe I'm okay. Well, it turned out that I was being drafted and I was at Camp Darby. Uh, so...
0: That had to be a scary feeling.
1: Uh, yeah, it was. In in a way, it was. Because uh, Peace
0: Corps and War Corps are inverse. That's right? true.
1: That's true. However, uh, Camp Darby kind of uh, mitigated that to some extent because uh, it kind of reminded me of Southern Pines. Uh, it, it had big, tall pine trees, and there was a golf course. And uh, huh. I'm walking around in civilian dress, and people are calling me sir. And I thought, this isn't bad. I think I could do this. Uh, but then reality set in and, oh, wait a minute, I think I know where I'm going when I leave Camp Darby, and it's, um, it's in the other direction. Uh, so, uh. So,
0: no, the story's uh, got a happy ending.
1: Yeah, in that, um, uh, I, I, I take this battery of tests and the sergeant tells me, Ken, you can do anything you want. We can, we can, uh, we, we can have you in air traffic control if you want. And I say, oh, I like that. Uh he was, you know, offering me jobs and, uh, said, okay, I'll, I'll think about it. Uh, he says, you know, anything, anything, tell me what you want. And then I had to say it to Sergeant. I had to give him the news. I said, Sarge, I, I just want to go back to Afghanistan. And he, that was the wrong answer. He didn't really appreciate that, but uh, okay, okay. Okay. Well, we'll see. Uh, so then my last stop was the medical office. I had to appear before a doctor who was a, army captain and uh, I went in there and um, already on his desk was the file that I had brought from the embassy peace corps doctor in Kabul and he had gone through it and uh, Mm -hmm. you know was asking me questions about my health and I I had seen in, in Herat I it is true that I had seen people in the streets dying of cholera. There had been a, a, a big cholera epidemic when we got there. Mm. Uh, and uh, I had a lot of uh, digestive and other problems. Uh, but still, I mean, I was able to function and, and things weren't that bad. Uh, so, you know, he, then the doctor closes up the file and says to me, So you're, you're coming from Afghanistan? What, what do you do in Afghanistan? And I said, well, I'm a teacher, and I work in a high school with with Afghans. Uh, And he said, do you like Afghanistan? And I said, "Uh, yes, sir, yes, I do. Do you think you're doing any good in Afghanistan? And I said, yes, sir, I I believe we are. Uh, And uh, he says, well, uh, let me tell you something. And he he looks down at his watch and says... uh, I've got 23 days, 6 hours, and 15 minutes before I'm out of here. And uh, you can tell I'm counting it down. Uh, He says, you know, really, I I don't think uh, you belong in the Army. He says, I think you're doing more good in Afghanistan. So you're failed. Uh, So I'm going to send you on your way. You can go back to Afghanistan. Hmm. And I, I... did you ever send it. him
0: a thank you card or anything?
1: No, no. Well, he didn't have that much time left himself. But uh, so as I'm, I turn around. I'm walking out the door, and I got my hand on the doorknob, and I'm about to walk. I said, "Oh, Ken," and he calls me back. I thought, "Uh-oh, this could be bad." Uh, I turn around and uh, walk back to the desk, and he says, "I've just got one question for you." Uh, yes, sir. Um, do you have any coins from Afghanistan? And I said, uh, yes, yes, sir, I do. Uh, Because actually when I left there, and I sort of collected coins on the side, uh, I had brought a bunch of coins with me because I thought I'm never going back to this place and these are neat. And it was just the change that I had around the house. I picked it all up and left with it. Uh, I said, yes, yes, I do have some, yes. He said, well, my son would be delighted if I came home tonight and I brought him some coins from Afghanistan uh do you think you could get those for me I, oh yes yes sir sure i can do that and i went running out and went straight over to the barracks and found those coins and uh brought them back to him and i like to think that maybe that's how i got out of the service uh and got back to bribe F-master an army doctor
0: a, with some low end coins right or a
1: plastic little plastic baggie filled with uh, coins but anyway, yeah, the story had a happy ending. I was happy to uh, have it in that way. Uh, not, you know, I have never been anti-military, not really, but uh, I, that- You know what I discovered? Adventure. I
0: discovered that most of our foreign policy directives are mirror images. Yeah. The whole idea of go over there and introduce American policy interface in a positive light with the host country nationals i mean a lot of that the military's intent is to do the same thing yes bring it back you know tools are different strategies almost parallel in my mind tactics are different strategies parallel that's my conclusion
1: good point yeah yeah so yeah i ended up you know a couple days later i'm three days later i'm back in herat and uh, doing my thing and had another year and uh, changed jobs and had an even better job Uh, i ended up Uh, being uh, one of two males, the other was the mullah, in the girls' high school in Herat. Uh, Behind high walls, uh, the mullah kept a a pretty careful eye on me, uh, just to make sure there were no shenanigans. But uh, uh, I ended up mostly working with the uh, female teachers there, all the teachers were female except for the mullah, Uh, doing uh, they were, they were studying English, and uh, I was helping them out with that. Uh, anyway, it was a great job, and then I was working with the uh, provincial director of education there, too.
0: So that so, was my
1: career in Afghanistan.
0: So that took you all the way through 72. Right. The end of 72. So at right. this point, you'd already been in Somalia. You'd, you'd left there and had, after a year there, you'd ended up in the States again for a bit and then... Two years and change in Afghanistan. So how old are you at this point?
1: Oh, gee, now now you're forcing me to do higher math here. Uh, Just
0: adding and subtracting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know. You'll Uh, be using
0: three-digit numbers where the rest of us (laughs) will be doing two, right?
1: uh, (laughs) Mid-20s. Yeah, mid-20s. So in your
0: mid-20s. Yeah. And so you're finishing your stint in the Peace Corps, and most folks who do the Peace Corps, I'm going to lump myself and everybody that you and I know into this bucket, we choose to come home and reacclimate ourselves to the culture of the United States. Now, none of us ever completely reacclimate, right? I know I don't. I still yeah, right. swear in Nepali, and you walk through my house. There's still lots of Nepali relics, and right. you know I still speak the language a lot. I spoke it what Sunday night for yes. like 20 minutes. You sure did. Yes. Um, you didn't. You made a not. i you, you can't say a career because it's more than that. You made a lifestyle out of international living. And therein lies, I mean, the, the Peace Corps stories you just told are the stuff of legend within that Peace Corps space. But now we're going to jump out of that Peace Corps space and just go to the humanity space. You are a permanent, permanently missettled immigrant, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Is that a fair yeah, summary, yeah, yeah, kind of um, sort of?
1: More or less, yes.
0: And if I stare at the list of the rundowns here of what you did, that you sent me, because I asked you, Ken, I can't keep up with all the who, what, when, where's, Fortunately, everything here is terrestrial. Mm. There's, you didn't spend any time on Venus. You avoided right. Mercury. It said they didn't have adequate enough sunscreen. But what I have here is I got two stints, three stints, four stints in Saudi Arabia. Mm. We got two stints in Iran. We got a stint in Singapore and then a really long stint in South Korea. Right. I was looking for what they had in common, and I couldn't find much of anything. Oh, but you forgot
1: Algeria.
0: Algerie. Oh, Algerie. yes. Yes. So also. I'm going to hop around a bit because I still want to dispel some of the myths that make us up. Mm-hmm. You were in Iran working corporate America-ish jobs. I'm looking Bell Helicopter, uh, National IR Radio, Television, and Cinema, all of us based out of Tehran. What was Tehran like between 74 and 77?
1: Uh, it Interesting place. Uh it was uh
0: So where are we at in the timeline of history of Tehran at this
1: Well point? the Shah was firmly ensconced still, although there was some dissent. Uh Did but, you feel safe? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. Uh and in fact, I mean uh the whole time I was there the uh U.S. military had quite a presence there uh, Uh training. uh, Training Imperial imperial Iranian Aviation and uh, also the Army and the National Guard. So uh, there were U.S. bases around Iran and there was even in Tehran, there was Armed Forces Radio Service. So you could walk around with a little transistor radio and you could hear American radio, uh, a lot of network shows from the states. And, Boy, and, have
0: times changed! Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: that w- that was Tehran, uh, and there was an, even a um, a, a uh, dry a morning drive show on the radio and a evening drive home show on Armed Forces Radio, uh, and that that sometimes caused a little bit of trouble because uh, one of the worst aspects of Tehran at that time, and it's even worse now, Is was the traffic. The traffic mm. was bad, uh, and there were no rules, and there was a lot of use of the horn, and it was crazy. And so the, the drive to work and the drive home shows on the radio sometimes would be, these are U.S. military DJs that are doing this, sometimes would make jokes about Iranian drivers and and all the brilliant that's a great way to influence friends yeah exactly uh okay it's in English nobody understands well not no no, plenty of people understood and uh it it occasionally would cause problems uh to the point where I think one or two of those guys lost their jobs even got pushed out of the country in a hurry uh for good reason really it was uh, they they went over the line but um do you like living in Iran Uh, Yeah. Uh, Other than the traffic, uh, yes. I mean, the people were great. Uh, Again, it's it's an Indo-European language. Uh,
0: So you were stable. Your Farsi was able to carry you through a lot of everything.
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh, More or less same language I was using in uh, Herat. I carried over into Iran and uh, got along fine. Uh, There... As I said, there there were dissenters. Uh, there were a lot of Iranians who were not happy with life uh, under the Shah. But um, still, for the most part, things weren't that bad. Uh, certainly, I think they were better than they are now uh, for most Iranians. But um, that so that's not taught to a-
0: us in our history books. We're taught that he was a tyrant and he killed la da da da, da and it was a. Positive event when he left and they took over their own. That's what we're taught. Well,
1: the the real, well, I started to say the real problem. No, one of the problems was that it's it's very easy to see that, and it is true that the Shah was put on the throne by the United States. And uh, that rubbed a lot of Iranians the wrong way. Uh, and so anything the Shah did was the wrong thing, in my opinion, uh, by mm. at, at least in the opinion of, uh, it, those people thought that, uh, the Shah was doing this in the name of Washington. Uh, he wasn't mm. doing it for Iranians. He was doing it for Washington. Uh, that, there was a lot of that. Um, so.
0: So, you know, in America, there is, at least if I can summarize the last eight years, there's, a whole battery of people who thought everything Obama did was great, and nearly everything that Trump does is bad, and vice versa. They hated all the actions that Obama took, and they like most of the actions that's Trump taking. And it's extreme. I mean, they're even without facts, they draw these conclusions that this guy's not good for us, and this guy was good for us, and vice versa. Yeah. Is it that same sort of dichotomy where they thought everything the shot did was bad, regardless, even if it wasn't?
1: Uh, to a great extent, yes. I, mean, I, I would say not, not to the extent we have in the United States at the moment uh, with the situation you've described. But, uh, yeah, to a, to a great extent, there was... That, Polarizing. Yeah, polarization, there mm. was,
0: yeah. You know what's called, cool about the story you just told is you, didn't, you said you didn't have any fear, and you're not appearing, you're not, you're not hiding or trying to cover up any fear that you really had when you were no, there. No. I guess you'd felt at that point you'd gone through much worse. Yeah, yeah,
1: difficulties in Somalia and and just the difficulty of, some of the difficulty of life, like in Herod, the winters, etc. I mean, Iran had central heating everywhere. Uh, uh, Not that far from where I lived, there was a, um, the the Rudaki Hall was a large uh, state-owned auditorium that brought in ballet uh, from Europe and uh, the arts and uh, I, I was employed, uh, Bell Helicopter was a military-type contract. On the other hand, also, uh, I worked at the uh, College of Television, Broadcasting, and Cinema. And uh, the Shaw encouraged the arts, and uh, we had... Uh, a a Tehran Film Festival every year, Uh where people from Hollywood were coming and uh, attending and showing films, first run films for the first time. Uh, And there was a cinema industry that was being encouraged in Iran uh, to the point where now there are, every once in a while in this country, uh, in the USA, an iranian film or a film made by iranians uh, not necessarily in iran but in farsi will come out and there have been several that i can't think of at the moment uh, in the last two or three years uh so the the film industry of iran continues to exist even if it is outside the borders i would um, never have known that and uh they win you know occasionally at sundance film festival and some of these other film more prominent film festivals, they win awards, these Iranian films, still to this day. Uh, and that all started with the Shah, and I'd like to think that it started with the uh, College of Cinema that uh, that I worked at. Uh, Would you go was, back
0: if somebody said, hey, can you want to go spend three not, months on a contract in Iran?
1: Not at the moment, again, Uh there's, there's been too much news out of Iran recently, even with the prisoner swap. Uh, there is the question of, uh, we're holding more of their prisoners than they're holding uh, of ours. And uh, with this prisoner swap, would that maybe encourage them to grab some more Americans who happen to be passing through there so that they can get empty more stalls. of their guys out? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, no, at the no. moment, no. But at the same time, let me say this. I know this year... I know some very brave Americans living around here who uh, who are uh, Iranian-Americans who have gone back to see family uh, this year, uh, and it, it, with a little bit of risk, I think they've done that, but they did it, um, and they, they've got American passports now, and they would be easy pickings if somebody wanted to do some picking, but... And hope. Mm. but They've, they did it, uh, and these were people, as I said, from around here, who hadn't been back to Iran in 7, 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't go back right so now. These kinds
0: of stories are mission critical because we have so much of our media convincing us of doom and gloom globally and hope is gone and risk isn't worth taking and stuff like that, to hear of the courage and people feeling that they're safe enough to actually do it now. Very much does a great job at unwinding those lies we're getting.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the appreciative
0: part of doing these podcasts. So let's jump from there to Algeria. Mm. Now, granted, there's an ocean in the way. Yes. Between the two places. How did you go from Iran to Algeria?
1: Well. uh, You no
0: longer have the language card.
1: That's true. Well, uh, I sort of third or fourth language or something was French. And I'd been studying French in high school and college. And, uh, and that is the fallback, uh, in Algeria. It was, it was a French colony for way too long. If you talk to any Algerian, right. And, um, they, you know, they had a major war with the French in order to get them out, uh, which they eventually were able to do. Uh, but, uh, when, when I arrived there, uh, it uh, had been independent for quite a while and had, was getting some aid from uh, Europe, European countries, very little assistance from the United States and a lot of assistance from the Soviet bloc. Uh, this was, hmm. a, a, uh, it was an interesting job uh, under very trying uh, living conditions.
0: Well, this is your longest stay anywhere to date, according yeah, to this right here.
1: Yeah, uh, true. Well, except for um, Korea. Uh, well, to date, right? Yeah, yeah to month? date, yes. Uh, yeah, it, it, in a way, it was, you know geographically speaking, great location because uh, you could fly to Spain in, in a half an hour uh, mm. to, to the Balearic Islands uh, from Algiers uh, for very little money. Uh, you could get to uh, the rest of Europe in an hour or two. Uh, So that Mm -hmm. was kind of neat. It was good for vacations and escapes and things. And there was a lot of escaping because of the trying living conditions, as I said, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, this was an interesting job in that uh, it was in a uh, sort of an artificial city uh, that... Uh, was a, was built on the uh, idea of creating a center of learning in Algeria. It was nothing but universities, students, professors, uh, colleges, uh, education was going on in this place they created on the coast, um, more or less in the desert. Uh, and... It was started by the Soviets. They brought in a bunch of technical experts, and uh, they started some training programs, and then mm-hmm. they eventually they evolved into a, a college and university. And then uh,
0: the... Was there a town here before they built this place, or is this the, a standalone event? Uh, more or less a
1: standalone event. It was right outside a, a little town called Boomerdes, a little village, a village called Boomerdes, which was just a bunch of huts but this town became known as Boomerdez uh, which was about a 45 minute drive um, east of Algiers uh, but kind of in the middle of nowhere kind of like the Denver uh, Airport yeah yeah right. Uh, exactly uh, so as I said, the Soviets started this, and then the Algerians uh, had discovered, or somebody had discovered in Algeria, vast amounts of natural gas and other petroleum potentials. And they were looking to export a lot of that uh, to Europe, very conveniently, not that far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, the Algerians themselves didn't have the technology. And even though it was a democratic republic at that time and was referred to that way, and I think there was another red star. Uh, Here we lot, go with the red of, star again. A lot of their newspapers. Uh, and and there were uh, Soviets running around all over the place. The Algerians didn't totally uh, trust those people. So when they realized that um, a lot of what was coming out of their ground Uh, in the form of natural gas, uh, mostly, could be used to produce, uh, as uh, Mrs. Robinson knew, uh, plastics. Uh, The word was plastics, they discovered. They wanted the utmost plastics technology they could get their hands on. And they knew they wouldn't get that from the Russians. They could only get the best plastics technology from the United States. And they were right. And they latched on to the number one plastics engineering professor in the United States, who happened to be at Stevens Institute of Technology, Hoboken, New Jersey. Hmm. Uh, And he he wrote textbooks on uh, plastics engineering. They brought him over as an expert, and the next thing you know, Stevens Institute had a contract with the Algerian government to set up a- So I've
0: never heard of Stevens Institute. Really? Still still existence? Oh, absolutely,
1: yeah. Hoboken, New Jersey is right across from Manhattan. And some of the postcards, which they don't have those anymore, I know. But some of the views of Manhattan you will see online, I'm sure, were taken from the Stevens campus, which is in New Jersey, but mm, right okay. across Manhattan. SIT is, is a good sc- niche school, uh, and plastics is one of their niches. Uh, and uh, this professor, as I said, had written several textbooks mm-hmm. uh, that were used extensively around the world to teach plastics. So they got hold of him. They ended up with a contract with Stevens uh, and something, uh, it was other partners, including the the Education Development Center in Massachusetts and uh, the University of Akron. Maybe you know the University of Akron. uh, The Zips. uh, Okay. Uh, Because of tires and rubber, the University of Akron is known. Uh, They were part of this. It was a consortium of... uh, Technical schools, but those were the main ones: SIT and Akron and uh, EDC. Uh, set so you were teacher. Yes, set up a um, graduate school. Basically, uh, the the students would for be, Algerians yes, or for internet yes, for Americans Yes, for, for Algerians, uh, and the graduates of this program would have a master's of science from Stevens Institute of Technology, which is internationally recognized um and uh we we were in boomer we had a couple of buildings in boomer and set up this program uh and it was pretty successful and i got to work with a lot of really nice young people uh, how many how many
0: algerians did you work with at a time
1: well uh Two classes, and each class had about uh, a dozen or so uh, students in it. And one of the neatest things was, uh, for me, uh, coming from my previous experiences, uh, the classes were about 50-50, male-female. Oh, so, wow. So Anti-EP Algeria, Einstein. but th- this was the Soviet influence, I think, that, that sort of right. uh, promoted that. Uh, there were female chemical engineers. Uh, and I was impressed with that. And of course, you know, the, the females were actually the better students, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were great. Uh, the, the guys were good too. And, uh, so what are you teaching? Um, basically, technical English slash English for plastics. Uh, so I had to English learn.
0: for plastics. Yes,
1: for plastics. That, that
0: even is a thing. Plastics engineering. Smile. I yeah. can't believe
1: it. Yeah, well there is a whole field. English in, for painting, in, in, in English e- for masonry. Yes, EFL, ESL, there is the feeling, that there is this field. Occupational of, English. Yeah, uh, ESP, English for special purposes is what it's called. And this was for the purpose of uh, plastics engineering. Uh, so we were, we were making plastics, plastics engineers, and it was a good program because they had some of the best teachers from some of the best schools in the world, really for chemical
0: engineering slash plastics. Uh, but and you, so you, you left there and after three years and change in the middle of January. Yeah, well, uh, the,
1: the program? Did you, leave,
0: did you leave by choice or your persona non grata? Again? No,
1: no, no. It was a good, it was a good positive experience. But right. The, the program was phasing down, and it was by the end of that year that the program was closed down. I, I don't know the all the reasons, but there was there were no political problems really. Um, things went very well, and I think maybe the answer is that Algeria had enough engineers. They thought at the moment for plastics, so it was time to wind that down and they didn't have an unlimited budget. Uh, but uh, going back for a moment to uh, living conditions, as I said, they were harsh. Uh, in Algeria? Yes, yes. Everything was great except living conditions. They were very, very difficult. I am not exaggerating when I say, believe me, there was, we lived in an apartment building on, on this, in this town, this artificial town, a rather new apartment building uh, that sustained one earthquake while we were there. And there was a much bigger earthquake about wow. seven or eight years ago that destroyed a lot of that town. Uh, rather new building when I was there. We had in that place a half an hour of running water per week. A and week? Per week. and You try to live with that uh now algiers no problem i mean algiers had a luxury hotel where you know that was everything uh but uh not in boomer Dez. and um thank god uh i was working how with, do you
0: do what's how do you how do you handle that what was your well, strategy for coping
1: well rationing for obviously uh is so at you'd the top like of the list. take as much as but you could
0: during that half an hour no, or is no, it no, minutes no. per day or one well, day a well, week? It was,
1: it was one day a week, uh, thirty minutes. It's and you never knew what day it was. I mean, last week it was Tuesday, and this week it may not be till Saturday. Uh, so you're going for longer than seven days in that case. So you're having uh, to keep
0: a stash for cooking rice. Yeah, and well, that, yeah. I was, I was brushing say, your teeth.
1: And... Thank God, I worked with a bunch of engineers, chemical engineers. I, I was the only English teacher there and uh everybody else was in was an engineer uh and they all they all knew how to build tanks and storage facilities and and structurally they knew where to put this so that they wouldn't damage the building and uh so they uh privately on their own installed these tanks for themselves Mm -hmm. and for me and so uh I had some pretty big tanks in a spare room in that apartment we lived in. I lived there with my wife. And uh, also on the uh, balcony. Uh, so there was more than just one tank full of water in a week. But again, it it was difficult. And uh, especially for cooking and all of that, as you can well imagine. And so uh, we went out to eat a lot for that reason. And that, made sense because also there was, there was no shortage of food once you got out of Boomer Burmodez. And uh, there were restaurants with French cuisine. Uh, so, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time eating out uh, just because food prep was next to impossible.
0: Sure. And
1: so there, there was the water aspect. And the other aspect of cooking was that, uh, of course, there were gas lines in the building, but there was no gas and you had to go out and you had to find tanks of propane and considering that all this gas was being burned off out in the fields out there uh the ironic algeria had uh there was no gas in the country basically and when you saw a truck that had propane tanks on it you had to go chase it through the countryside and get it to stop and then mm. uh encourage the guy to sell you a propane tank
0: let's talk for the, about these last two countries or maybe we can say three if we include singapore in there but we got a long stint ken we're looking at um four years plus tax in saudi arabia all at the airport how did that come to pass <laughs> you've been well, working doing educational ish projects and you had airport experience from a long time ago port of mogadishu experience Now you're in Saudi Arabia. Uh, How did that come to pass?
1: The airport, you mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, it was uh, the the story of, uh, again, being in the States and uh, looking for the next contract. Got to go someplace exotic and do something interesting.
0: That's your theme. Someplace exotic, something interesting. If you check those two boxes, it's game on, isn't it? That's
1: right. Exactly. Right. I like it. I lucked uh lucked up into uh the right job at the right time and uh got offered again with old-fashioned networking got offered uh a interview with uh, a construction company in greenville south carolina Mm -hmm. who had a contract to build the new international airport in Jeddah, and it was just an It was the perfect situation, actually. I I like the idea of uh, being at an airport, uh, having a real job, uh, training at a new airport, and it was a a turnkey contract where uh, by the time the contract was up, uh, the Saudis were supposed to be able to totally man and run this airport. Uh, And I was to be... Training uh, all sorts of people uh, in every job description imaginable at that airport mm-hmm. from uh, the guy that uh, does FIDS flight information display systems to uh, the guy that changes the light bulbs in the ceiling to uh, the guy that is the um, dispatcher for buses and, and uh, Ground control at the airport. Uh, and I, I knew I could handle it because of my interest in flight and everything. And when they hired me, they knew that. So no problem. Um, I ended up, uh, in, in Jeddah at the job, lived at the airport.
0: You lived at uh, the airport. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And discovered that like where I live right now is, is on the flight path, uh, into Charlotte Douglas. Uh, obviously I, I, I live in South Carolina, but, uh, it is on the flight path of the uh, run three six runways uh, from south to north, straight in, and I get more airplane noise where I live right now beyond Carowinds than uh, where no when I lived at the airport in Jeddah. Uh, was it just there's So
0: few flights, or
1: no? It was well. For one thing, um, I just have concluded that if you live at the end of a runway, either end you're going to get a whole lot more noise than if you live in the middle of the runway. Uh, We we had housing uh, very close to the runway, but uh, it was the middle of the runway, not at either end. And there were walls and and, and, uh, other sound uh, barriers that uh, prevented a lot of sound from coming over. So uh, it was quiet actually. And uh, had, uh, full access to the airport, I mean full access, Uh, had a company car with stickers on it that allowed me to drive on the runway if I needed to do that, had an office in the tower, and uh, that's where I did most of the training in the tower when we weren't right on the job in a terminal or something, Uh, and it was great. Um, I found uh, a lot of the trainees uh, rather difficult to work with, let's just... Putting it politely, they weren't that motivated. Mm. Uh, Were they so Saudi was, nationals? Yes, or? yes, yes. And that was a challenge. That was a challenging part of that job. Otherwise, I mean, uh, Jeddah is maybe the best place in Saudi Arabia to live. Uh, it's relaxed and uh, lots of, uh, even back then, uh, lots of good restaurants and uh, other uh, sites to see. Uh, so that, that was all good
0: um so you know what i'm gonna ask because i've asked hmm. it about almost every other place would you live there again would you go back somebody said hey ken you're needed in Jeddah."
1: quite possibly yes yeah, uh, yeah, that's, yeah that's quite a compliment then yeah Jeddah was uh was pretty good
0: um so what's weather in Jeddah like
1: it uh is pretty steady 12 months a year although there there is a summer there is a winter but uh they're not very extreme and uh there's not much of a rainy season. Uh, there's a little. Uh, off and on, it does rain. And I actually saw snow there once. But no they, they, were, they were flakes, uh, drift, uh, just flakes coming down. But uh, small ones. But um, otherwise, uh, it's practically the same 12 months a year.
0: So what's the high-low of average?
1: Uh, you're on the Red Sea, and uh, so you're getting a nice sea breeze, and it, it's not that bad, uh, really. It,
0: um, Is it like maybe, 100 every day?
1: In, not, not in the winter, no. In the winter, it's 90 every day. Uh, in the summer... Get the fleece out, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah. In the summer, you, you, maybe it's 100 many days, yes. but
0: uh, What's it get down to at night? Uh,
1: well, in the city, maybe 60. Out in the desert, maybe 50. Or lower. I mean, the desert can be cold at night, and I've done diurnal, right? Yeah, I've done some camping out uh, way out in the desert, and it gets downright cool. Yeah, but still, you're not that far away from Jeddah and and another, other cities. But um, so the, the weather is very predictable. Uh, there's not, not so. What do you do for
0: fun weather. in Jeddah? If you're at the airport, and we're talking Saudi Arabian governmental restrictions on this that yeah. and the other thing what do you do for fun well
1: at that time uh, I hate to put it this way but I will uh, one of the neatest things about being there is the fact that you were at the airport you're relative to the rest of the world you were in a great location for flying out of there and going someplace else
0: so if you were uh, bored so you just go somewhere tourism
1: yes uh, There is some domestic tourism. I think uh, the government is trying to promote some right now. And for the first time, they're opening some sites that were closed to tourism. But luckily, like I being a resident and having a connection or two, got to see, for example, uh, Lawrence of Arabia's railway. I mean, if you saw the movie and you saw the train, uh, you can see part of the train in Saudi Arabia uh, still to this day and it's not in a museum it's in the middle of the desert they're uh no kidding collecting dust uh and everybody know well a lot of people know about petra in jordan well there is a similar site uh similar nabati same people same kind of site in saudi arabia which has been closed to the public uh mm. i think they're going to open that i've been there uh, and if you're into diving or even snorkeling uh the Red Sea is fantastic. Uh, there's some great spots to do that.
0: I and had no fishing, idea. Yeah. Uh, fishing, f- you said.
1: Yeah, yeah, not far from Jeddah. I mean, 20-minute you know, drive from Jeddah, you can find a good fishing spot in the Red Sea uh, or, or diving or snorkeling. Uh, so there's all of that going on. But then if you hop in an airplane, I mean, uh, within a few hours, you can be in Mauritius. Beautiful place. Everybody knows about the Seychelles. Not that many people know about Mauritius. Uh, Mauritius is fantastic. A lot of people don't know it's
0: pronounced Mauritius. Yeah, yeah. They see all those vowels and they think it's a bowling alley and just try to put them all together.
1: Uh, It's in the Indian Ocean and uh, sort of off the coast of Africa.
0: Is that one of the countries Uh, threatened by uh, climate? change uh, not sea m- rise
1: not as badly as some others i think because yeah, i know uh, seychelles
0: I it, is absolutely yeah
1: yeah they, no, they've got a little more elevation there i think but uh, it's in some ways it's an island paradise uh been to the seychelles and all of this is from from Jeddah seychelles uh madagascar uh spent time in madagascar uh, a little unusual right now to say it but made several trips and they were enlightening it was great to go to Yemen. Uh and I really So hate you're the
0: only American I know that's ever been to Yemen for non-military reasons. Yeah, I
1: hate the fact that there's a war going on there now. Uh Yemen is always has been uh practically a, a dirt poor Arab country that was little known and uh should be and I wish it were a lot better known. Uh the uh my one plug would be for a book called *The Monk of Mocha*, and the fact that uh, even though a lot of Ethiopians claim that coffee, as we know it, was discovered, invented, and developed in Ethiopia, no, actually, uh, that all happened in Yemen. Uh, the coffee we drink, really from the Arabica beans, uh, originated in Yemen. And there, who would have guessed? There are two people. Um, at the moment in the USA, who are attempting to revive that business in Yemen uh, with war going on at the same time. Uh, one of them is an ex-military who was so impressed with the Yemenis that he's devoted the rest of his life to helping the people in Yemen, U.S. military. And then the other is a Yemeni-American, a young man who, who's family when he was 2-3 oh, years old um, immigrated to the USA and they ended up living in California and he discovered his heritage by mistake by accident mm-hmm. and ended up going back to Yemen as a young man just a few years ago within the past 5-6 years and he was he was in tech in San Francisco and uh, has totally done a 180 and now he's developing the coffee industry in Yemen and Trying to export that coffee to the USA, and successfully, he has won several tasting blind tasting awards at coffee uh, exhibitions in Seattle in the past couple of years. Uh, Yemeni coffee is fantastic, and it really is where coffee originated. And who would have guessed the uh, the Queen of Sheba story is is uh, often associated with Ethiopia? Actually, Shibam is in Yemen. And e- anyway, Ethiopia and Yemen were the same kingdom, just separated by some water at that time when the Queen of Sheba was reigning. Uh, so all of Never that, known that all of that is the, the Yemeni tie, and the coffee tie is fantastic. And if you look for Yemeni coffee online, sometimes it's available. But these two guys, both that are promoting this, two different companies, uh, are very particular about the quality of the product and so it's not cheap, number one. Number two uh, it's available only in very limited quantities, very seldom because they get a shipment in and the beans and they roast them and then they want to sell them within three days of roasting Mm -hmm. them. So it's not what you buy at uh, the supermarket. It's much higher quality than that. But so you could fly to Yemen and do that. You could go to Oman. You could go to Bahrain. You could go to Kuwait. And I did all those places uh, from Jeddah. Uh, Not to mention the fact that um, I had a wife who uh, worked at an embassy and got discount tickets to go to Europe. So on European, on European airlines. So uh, we're flying to Europe for every vacation and a three-day weekend. So how many times
0: a year did you get on a plane and leave Jeddah?
1: a lot too many to um, count yeah too many to count yeah it's it's numerous it was it was always you know so when's your next trip and the next trip was mm-hmm. next week probably i get uh, that a
0: lot now in my yeah. current role as adventure travel guy yeah so you end up in um last day is your longest stay samsung yeah. you know i remember when we were doing our competition uh, last month at the uh, world affairs council and they put up the flags, and I immediately identified South Korea, and each of the corners of the flag had a different Korean word on them. Do you remember this? Well, there's... there's and one of them was the word Samsung. I'm kidding. It's not on their no, flag. But no, it's not. When you think South uh, Korea, you think, you know, Hyundai, you think Samsung.
1: Yeah. Uh... Yeah, it's it's an interesting company.
0: It's you were there uh, like sixteen years. Yeah, in Seoul in Seoul the whole time. You, as well,
1: well, let, let me uh, let's go back to my father uh, a minute because he comes to mind and a couple of things we've talked about so far. Uh, I, I in the middle of the whole career, one time I show up in Charlotte, and uh, my father grabs hold of me and says, "You know, by the way, I've been meaning to ask you something. Uh, what do you do for a living, anyway?" And, you know, coming from my father after having, uh, we communicated a lot. I mean, uh, he wrote me the whole time he was alive, and I was not living there in Charlotte. He wrote me a letter at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. Sent him to Afghanistan, sent him to Somalia, sent him to Algeria. My father was a writer anyway, by profession. Uh, so, uh, what it, a it gift. Was, it, it was kind of a funny question and the way he said it, because he was also kind of a comedian. Uh, and I said, you you know what I do. He said, well, no, but my observation is that uh, every place you've been, shortly thereafter when you leave, there's a civil war or a riot or a revolution or a coup d'etat or something happens.
0: So he thinks uh, you're working for CIA or something like that.
1: promoting such activities, apparently. Right. Yeah. And... <laughs> And, and this is, you know, also true. I said, geez, I never really thought of that. But you're right. Uh, there, there was sort of chaos every place I left. Mm-hmm. Well, then when I'm talking to Koreans, especially the Samsung guys, uh, so, you know, where have you worked? Where have you been? And I'm going through the list. And then more than once I heard uh, a Samsung man, which is what they call them, heard a Samsung man say, "Oh." You're not leaving Korea. We won't let you leave. Uh, we, you know, after hearing this, uh, no, we're, we're going to make you a citizen and you're going to have to stay here. We won't give you a passport. Uh, no, no, you're not leaving because there's always the threat. And while I lived there, there was the, a couple of times there were some close calls with North Korea. Uh, so, and Seoul uh, is, and I lived in North Seoul where they discourage Koreans from living, it's mostly expats living in big houses on the mountainside up there. Uh, it's within easy artillery range of the wrong folks up there.
0: So um, the wrong yeah. folks. Well, up yeah, there. yeah, you know. I knew what you but, meant, but that yeah. uh, was about as politically correct as you can yeah, get.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm trying.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, but uh, ignoring. But Sixteen
0: years. All of yeah. a sudden, you went from a stint of two here, three here, four here, three here. All the way to 16, yeah, what was it? Korea was comfortable,
1: uh, you know, in every way, shape, and form. The The job was great. The living was good. Uh, people were good. Uh, money was good, I'll be honest. Uh, everything was good. I had no complaints. And the fact that mm-hmm. my wife was there and had a good job. She's working for the embassy, and we all, we lived in, in embassy housing, and... Uh, Everything was groovy. Uh, It was it was a nice setup.
0: So you didn't even have a housing bill. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I
1: never had. Well, with all of these jobs, I never had to pay rent or worry about housing uh, with the whole career. Uh, However, let me just be uh, clear on that. At the same time, every year I filed an income tax return with the IRS. And every year, I had to put down the value of the housing as part of my income. So they, they get you coming and going. Both.
0: So even though you were spending more than 100 and whatever the cutoff is nowadays, whatever many days a year you're spending outside of U.S. soil, you were still being expected to pay federal income yeah. tax?
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah,
0: but you didn't have a state income tax, did you?
1: No, no, thank God for that. But um, although it, uh, working for USC, there was a big argument with California. Uh, California wanted to... Uh, to hit me with California state taxes, yeah. and I had to fight that, and eventually I won But because, you know, I, I lied and said, I've never even set foot in California. I, I have nothing to do with that, uh, and eventually they relented, but uh, no, I've never, never paid any state taxes that way.
0: So you're in Korea for all these years, and during that time, you've had more than one opportunity to reflect on all the different places you lived and what you went through and avoiding the draft and all the languages you'd put under your belt. And um, what was it that moment when you said, you know, I'm going to go back to the States? Well, uh, because it wasn't until you got back here that I met you. Yeah, quite honestly, uh, (laughs) the the
1: Koreans were part of that, even though there was this group that said, oh, we're not going to let you leave. Uh, Top, top, top management, uh, and it's in the Korean psyche that... uh, you get to a certain age, and it's really time to be phased out. And I saw that with a lot of good people at Samsung. Uh, we've got to have a young, dynamic company. And and I was pretty young and dynamic and crazy, even when I left. But um, they, a couple of times, I got called into this vice president's office, and then he would take me out for dinner and drinks and everything else, socializing, and... He would keep raising the subject of retirement, uh, so I knew that uh, you know it was in the works. Uh, and eventually, were so you a
0: Samsung employee throughout all that?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. And uh, and to this day, I respect the company, and they were great to me, and, and always, including after I left. Uh, so, and and it is just ask any young Korean person and they will tell you that is the company to work for in Korea. Not LG, not Hyundai, uh, but Samsung. E- every young university graduate tries to work for Samsung. I mean, I've been really? in a couple of Korean restaurants here and just thrown... When, when I realized that the, the person serving me actually was Korean, uh, I would just throw out a little bit of Korean you speak Korean? How do you speak Korean? Well, I, I lived there for 16 years. Oh, you lived? Well, you, you were in the military. No, no, I wasn't in the military. I worked for Samsung. <gasps> you work for Samsung? That's my dream job. I've, I've Twice I've been told that in Charlotte at a Korean restaurant. Oh, you work for Samsung. That's my dream job. Uh, to this day, the young people dream about... So what you Samsung.
0: do and where you work were blurred. Dream jobs, not dream company, but they would equate the two.
1: Yeah, yeah, Uh, absolutely. I've seen that before. Yeah.
0: So let's go back to the question you know that's coming. Samsung calls and said, hey, we got a six-month gig. You coming?
1: Yeah, I think I would. You'd go back. Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, just for all sorts of logistical and other uh, reasons, I haven't gone back uh, since I left but it's on the calendar and uh, for one of these days. And I know a number of people have, uh, I want to check it out again.
0: Have you got any ideas about writing a book or perhaps even being a consultant for the Peace Corps, helping with cultural immersion stuff? Because your portfolio of skills is crazy unique.
1: Yeah. Well, in a way that's good. In another way, it's uh, very niche and you, got to find the right venue to, uh, use those things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, with networking again, if somebody called and made me an offer, I would very seriously consider it to a lot of the places I've been, not just the places I've worked at. Uh, so no, you know, things are still possible, I think. Uh, Knock on wood, I'm I'm still healthy and uh, got my wits about me. So uh, I guess uh, I would consider
0: nearly anything uh, at all. Yeah. Well, it has been my treat to finally get the whole story out of you, Ken. Well, or at got least
1: most if, of the story.
0: Because normally in the past we get interrupted by life, or our orders being delivered, or we've got an event to go to, or something. But getting it all out of it is wonderful. Um, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this chapter of Threshold Stories, Crossing Thresholds One Story at a Time. Ready to cross more thresholds with me in two weeks. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. You can find me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page at Jeff Gora Team USA.